Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Nashawas podcast. So grateful to have Rifka Tauber here today. She grew up in Crown Heights and currently lives in Jerusalem. She's an educator and is here to share her journey of experience and hope from the challenges of depression, the struggle finding reasons to live, to the wholeness she discovered in her connection with others and her relationship with God, therapy, and more. Thank God today she is free from the obsession over the future and is really able to live in the present. Welcome, Rivka. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. To get us uh, started, can you just give us a little glimpse onto who Rivka was growing up in Crown Heights? Rivka growing up in Crown Heights was scared and not sure of her place in the world, in relation to others. She was very worried and she didn't know, you know, she didn't know what was next. She didn't know how to help herself and she didn't know where to go for help. When you start describing yourself, at what age is that? Um, six, seven. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse of like what it was like experiencing? What is a day in the life? How would it be expressed? So I grew up in a chaotic home. There was a lot of chaos. I'm the second of seven siblings. I'm an oldest girl. So I had a lot of responsibility for my siblings and for, you know, I assumed the responsibility of creating some kind of calm or helping, you know. And at school, I struggled socially. I didn't fit in. I didn't, you know, I didn't really have the social skills to fit in. And I was, I was bullied. I had, you know, trouble with my peers and I didn't feel like I had friends. So growing up, I was very alone. I developed as a bit of an island, just being, being on my own. Sounds like you assumed a lot of the responsibility. What did anybody give that to you or is it something you felt like take upon yourself? I didn't see an option in life that didn't have me shouldering the world. And it felt like too much. It felt like a lot. Actually, I might be jumping, I don't know, ahead here, but my around that age six or seven was actually the first time that I remember very actively not wanting to live and at that time I think I was six years old I actually drank a cup of detergent thinking that that would that was poison that would kill me and I remember being very disappointed 
um, that it didn't. It just gave me a stomachache. But that was the first time that I consciously remember not wanting to live and doing something about that. At that time, nobody knew what happened. Like it just fell into everything else. And that started a spiral, you know, just like this, this, that's where that started from. Let me try this. Let me try that. Maybe. Yeah. Let me sing will lessen the pain maybe. And I don't even think it was so conscious. You know, I don't think at, at six years old, I really was trying to lessen the pain. I just didn't want to be here in this world. That was just the feeling. It was just, it was a lot. It was too much. And I didn't want to take part in it anymore. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the language for it. It wasn't for many years before. It was many years before I even like learned what the word suicide meant, you know, but that was, that was my experience. Did you ever make attempts to try to find an answer? When I was that little? No, I didn't. I was, I was always a very, I was always, I was always very much in my head as a child. I always, I used to think up these elaborate like schemes and trying to understand the world and how God worked and how history worked. And I used to like, I was very, very active. I read a lot and I tried and understand, you know, where, where I was in relation to the world, where I was in relation to, to time, to all of those pieces. And I used to very be able to like construct these elaborate stories about where I was and and why I was here, but I was never really able to reach out or communicate that with anyone else. It was always stuck in my head. What you, purpose do you think that served, this whole idea of finding yourself? I think that I wanted to, I wanted a narrative around it. You know, if I was suffering and even if I couldn't put it into the words of like, I'm suffering, I wanted it to have purpose. And I think that, you know, putting myself in context of history and context of, you know, people that came before me, people that would come after me, whatever it was, having that allowed me to contextualize the pain. Was there ever a story that you connected with really helped you find your place? I used to, I, I was a very avid reader, avid reader, and I used to watch, I used to read a lot of stories of the Holocaust and, you know, things like that. And I used to, I don't know that I related to it, but I, I found a weird sense of connection to that I I just found you know like I was able to relate to to, to pain and, and suffering in that way right I'm also sensing that there was also a sisterhood and a brotherhood in these pages of which in this world you were on your own I think that also there was a certain sense of you know when reading about the holocaust there was a acceptance of pain it was an acceptance of of feelings of, of fear of anxiety of those sort of things that weren't normal that there wasn't a language i had in my world you know in you know the early 2000s growing up there was no like that th those words anxiety fear pain those things weren't spoken about but in those stories that was a place where i was able to find find those words find feelings that that resonated with what I was feeling so it was I think a lot of that that emotional reality being able to find an emotional reality that matched what was going on in my inner world and how did taking on all the burden help you what purpose did that serve? it allowed me to move through life it allowed me to you know if i if i had a job to do 
then I was able to, I was able to do something, right? I wasn't just suffering and like in my own, you know, because so much, you know, so much of the pain that was going on was all in my head, so to speak, you know, it was, it was, it was in my head and therefore I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't experiencing it in, in day-to-day life necessarily. So, and it definitely wasn't acknowledged in day-to-day life with the people I was around, the people I was spending time with. So having what to do, having responsibility, needing to take care of other people allowed me to find something to do with my body while I was going through this. How how many years did it last where you had those thoughts? Did it develop into anything? How did it express itself? So, like I said, this is like a conscious thought, like I don't want to live started probably when I was about six which corresponds to being in about first grade, I think. It continued until I was in ninth grade at about 14 before I had a vocabulary for it, before I even knew to open my mouth about anything that was going on. So I suffered in silence for about eight years. They were very hard. I had very few friends at the time, you know, going through school and nobody around me was able to you know, picked up on anything that was going on. I would say that when I was in, you know, around the age of 11, 12, bas age, that's when it got really bad. I have very, very few memories from those years of my life, but I remember just trying with almost Herculean effort to like hold up, you know, what was going on at home and, and, and be there. And then also try and, you know, do well in school, which was always something I struggled with. And I tried to hold both of those. So throughout all this, throughout all this, school said, "Hey, what's going on? Your marks are." I I always had a you know like a a school therapist, uh, someone who saw me you know once a week, but they never picked up on what was going on. You know, if they were dealing with anything, it was always like the social side of things. I had very few friends, and they were trying to help me make friends or, you know, things like that. But they never picked up on anything deeper going on. One of, so, you know, throughout this time I had very, you know, very few friends. I was, you know, an outcast and actually one of the first friends that I had as a child in second and third grade was Yechavet Garari. And she was the first person who reached over that, you know, divide that happened. You know, I was, I was the outcast in my class. I was, I was seen as an outsider and, you know, nobody wanted to be my friend or be my partner or, you know, that's just how kids are, you know, that's, I think, human nature. And she was the first person that was able to reach over the divide and I became friends with her. And, you know, from there, I, I, I was able to have, you know, one or two good friends in school after that. I used to, but it was, it was very lonely and it was very, it was, it was hard. It was challenging. If there's anything that you would love for her and any of those friends to know? What would it be? How powerful a friend as a child is and how um, how beautiful it is to be able to reach out and be kind. It's one of the, you know, those those moments that I spent in, you know, Yochavet's house playing with her, you know, those are some of the very few moments of childhood that I have that I remember, you know drawing or just playing they're so precious and so few but they continue to fill me with light
just take that. I wanted to leave that moment. I think I'm going to leave it. And because there's nothing to say. Aside for thank you to those friends. What, where did that lead to? And I know I'm going to stack the question, but like, what did that lead to? Meaning what was it like after those few years between the ages of like, you know, four, like what happened at 14 or 15 and 16? So, yeah. So when, so to start answering that question, when I was, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I, you know, like the, the, the lifeboat, the only lifeboat that I really had was overnight. Those months that I got to spend outside of the environment that caused, you know, that was causing me so much pain was really, I think, the only reason that I survived. Being able to be in a, you know, I wasn't just the only outsider. I wasn't the only one coming in. We were all away from our environment and we were able to connect and just be kids together it was extremely, extremely valuable. And during that time, I was able to make some close friends. And those relationships really, really helped me in ways that I, I, I don't, I don't like my, my life was built on those relationships. When I was 14, I, I had friends that I became very close with and I suddenly was able to, I suddenly realized that, hey, things aren't normal. That was the first time that I realized that what was going on isn't what everyone experienced. Up until that point, I don't know that I knew that that like other people lived other lives or had different family situations. But when I was in, when I was 14, when I was in ninth grade, I suddenly like realized like, oh, this isn't what everyone goes through. And suddenly I was able to start talking about it. And I had some friends around me who were a bit older than me and, you know, listened and heard me out. And that was really the first time that I had the language to say like, I'm suicidal. My home situation isn't good. I'm not like I wasn't, you know, I was also at that point I was cutting, you know, just to like release some some of what was going on inside of me. And it was like the first time that I was able to tell that to anyone. And I had people who were listening. Maybe they weren't necessarily like the right people yet, but suddenly like I was I was able to open up my mouth and in some ways that made it a little bit harder than what I was going through until now because now I had words for it. And if that's what I was going through, then it somehow I could, I was catastrophizing it a little bit more in my head because I had words and I had definitions and I had the internet <laughs> to like see what other people are going through and see, you know, but in, in many ways that was the only way for it to come out was through talking about it. And at that point, I, at that point, some people in school started noticing, some of my teachers um, were no noticing that I wasn't doing well. And basically the decision was made for me to go out of town for school the following year. What do you think they saw? What were you experiencing that you can offer to people? Hey, look, this is what I was going through. This is where people could have seen. I think that, I think that people, I think that the entry point for any of this is really quite simple and that's connection. If there's, you know, I think that we, we need to find ways to authentically connect with people. And I think that people or the 
those around me, the adults around me. I was I was an outcast. I was I, you know I, I built myself like an island, a for, an island fortress almost, and I didn't let people in. So people just you know wrote me off. It was very easy for me, you know, for them to just say like, okay, she's on her own, and we're gonna let her be on her own. And I think that what I needed was someone to not give up on me, for someone to authentically connect. And that's what would have, or or even just to recognize that if someone's a fortress island, that's a red flag. You know, if someone's not connecting with people, someone's not, someone's, you know, standoffish, doesn't have, you know, close friends or whatever it is, you know, an intervention's needed. Maybe dig a little bit deeper than what you're seeing at the surface. You know, there's certain things like not having friends. It's, it's not a problem in and of itself. It's a symptom. And I think that's what people missed with me. You know, it wasn't just my grades. It wasn't just that I was, you know, struggling with school. That was, that was a symptom of what was going on inside and I think that we need to recognize that people are whole people. We're not just, you know, students aren't just students. We're not, they're not just learning machines, right? We're, we're whole people. And if grades are suffering, then there's a person that's suffering, mm. you know? Thank you for that. What I found interesting is that even though it's almost logical, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it, is that you were opening yourself up to people who really were not professionals. No. And not only that, they did not have the answers. They did not have a solution, but it was still worth it for you to take the risk with them just so that you could be heard. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I'm trying to highlight is, is that people can be a resource without really knowing what the answer. Yeah. And I think, you know, those friends that were there for me, I'm forever grateful to them. And I think that people, People authentically connecting with people is, is so, you know, is not the answer. There's, you know, there is, there are, there are professionals and professionals exist for a reason. And so much healing can happen with just authentic human connection. And I think that we live in an age where, you know, thank God, you know, people are more aware of mental illness or, you know, people struggling. And we're so quick to assign it to professionals, you know, you're having a problem, go speak, go speak to a therapist, go, you know, and like, we're missing so many opportunities to just be present with other people, to just say, I see your pain. I see what you're going through. And it's okay. I can sit with you in your pain. I can sit with you in your brokenness. And that's where, you know, people begin to learn you know, I'm able to be loved. I'm able to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so broken that I'm damaged goods, you know, which is a belief that I held for a very long time. Mm -hmm. How was it leaving um, and going to another school? It was huge for me. It was every, you know, it was, it was what I needed. It was the right choice, but it made the mental illness um, or the depression and the suicide ideation a lot worse because suddenly I wasn't holding up the world. I didn't have that responsibility. And that responsibility was... It was a lifeboat. It was, it, it kept me going. And suddenly I didn't have that. And I was only responsible for me. And I realized, and I just felt so broken. And I felt so, I just felt crushed. And I didn't feel like, you know, and I just was like, you know, my own life didn't feel worth living. Wow. Um, it really sounds like that, uh, you know, that, I don't know if it, this is like clinically diagnosed as like codependence, but like that was really... Your, mm -hmm. your painkiller. Yeah. And all of a sudden that painkiller of having people depend on you. 
was really effective and it was gone. And suddenly I didn't know what to do with myself. And it didn't happen so suddenly. It happened gradually through the year. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got, you know, to after Pesach time, you know, during the school year, it was bad that Lagbaimer was probably the heart what I what I refer to now as looking back as really the hardest day of my life. It was like I I not only didn't see a future, but I didn't see it today. I didn't see there was just there was nothing there was nothing for me in that moment. I didn't have any resources and I I I don't really know. I mean, I have, you know, certain things that you know, that were graces of God, that were gifts that were given to me in those moments that allowed me to like just put a, a foot in front, get from one second to the next in the, in that moment. But that was really, you know, the heart, the, the, the bottom, the bottom of the barrel for me. Can you describe the many words that you have available to you? What is the experience, the internal experience of all that? It just felt like everything that was inside of me was garbage. Like there was nothing, like my insides, there was nothing that could have been saved. There was nothing that could have been fixed. And there was nothing that could have been loved by me or by anyone else. And I just, you know, the, the, the you know, just like up until that point, like, you know, I was like, you know, at that, at that point in my life, I'd already been introduced over like the last like 18 months to like the world of therapy and healing and a lot of like self-help style books and different things like that at that point. And I was all gung-ho about, you know, fixing myself or helping myself in some way. And I, and, and, and just the thought of, of, of getting help or fixing myself at that point was so exhausting. And so it just felt so impossible. It felt like the furthest thing from something that I could do. And I, and I just, I just felt like it wasn't even just that dying would be easier. It was that dying was the only way to let the world continue. I felt like if I would fix myself, I would have to drain the world of all its resources for something that felt so unfixable. And by me not existing in the world, I would, I, I would be helping other people because I would be freeing up resources for everyone else to have. Can you continue sharing like minute by minute? Like how, what did that turn into? So, thank God, you're here. Yeah, so thank God I'm here. I honestly don't remember very much. You know, I know that I, I remember that darkness. I, I remember that darkness. I remember that pain. Two close friends at the time, actually, um, in school with me. One who was one who was a really great friend and continues to be a really great friend of mine now, and the other one who was also struggling with her mental health and suicide ideation, and you know that stuff and we you know back in that same like saving codependent cycle thing we like seesawed off each other like one of us would be doing really bad and the other one would try to say you know help the other person and then mm. you know the seesaw would would sway and the other one would be down and the other one would be okay at that point a teacher in my school got involved and I became really close with her and I spoke to her about what was going on how did she make her way 
So she was. <laughs> she was actually the sister of this close friend. This not not one one of my close friends at the time, and she, you know, I, I think I was starting to open up my fortress a little bit. I realized that I I needed help. Had she earned your trust? She was willing to sit with my pain. You know, there was one night that I, you know, around this time that I texted her and I said, I'm not making it through the night. And she actually drove to my dorm and picked me up. And I stayed by her for the night. And I remember sitting on the couch and just, I mean, I don't even think we said anything. She was willing to sit with me knowing what I was going through. And I don't know if that saved my life. I don't know, you know, if I would have done something if I, you know, like, but I was in a tremendous amount of pain. And she was willing to sit with me through it. Until you eventually fell asleep. Until, yeah, and then I went to bed and I got through the night. And, and there was another day. There was another day. At that point, at that point, I it was close to the end of the school year. And basically the school, you know, being that where I was, I really, I needed better help than what I was able to get there. And I was also, it wasn't in. It was in Canada, so I wasn't and have medical coverage essentially to support this. So the school sent me back to New York, back home, to deal with it. And basically, what they told me at that point was that if I was able to get the help I need and get stable, then I'd be able to come back for the next school year. So I came back home, which was really hard. And I was, you know, Basically, it was my family's responsibility now together. You know, this teacher helped, you know, was, was helped as well, but to get the help I needed. And I wasn't believed. I came home and they basically, I'm a really good, functional, depressed person. And basically, you know, being back home, being back in that environment where I didn't feel safe, I got up in the morning and I did things because I didn't know how to not. And that was a way of, of masking the pain because it was really, really hard. So what ended up happening was my family saw, saw me and was like, you know, maybe she's depressed, but she's, you know, she's not about to end her life because look, she's getting dressed in the morning, right? She's okay. So... I went to, I went to, you know, so they, they sent me to one therapist and another therapist. And ultimately because these therapists were hired by my parents, by my family, I didn't really trust them because I felt like, you know, I'm a minor and it's basically just, you know, I'm talking to this person, but everything I say is being told to my family, you know, my family again. So I tried many therapists, you know, they were hired by my, by my parents and I, I didn't trust them because I just felt that it was a a gauzy filter you know anything I said to them will just be repeated to my family and it wasn't safe it wasn't safe for me to tell them everything that was going on inside of my heart and my head so I just you know I basically I tried to you know I tried to state the facts I am depressed I want to end my life because I needed help and I really desperately wanted to be I, I wanted I wanted medication I wanted I wanted to get better you know I wanted you know, you know, if like I had a will to get better and I just wanted, I was like, you know, throw me, you know, those, those life circles that they throw off a boat, 
throw me one of those lifesavers and I will take that lifesaver and I will paddle myself all the way to shore. I don't need anything more than that, but just give me that to hold on to. Give me like, and, and like, that's what I saw, you know, antidepressants as I was like, I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm going to drown and I just need something small. And I kept going to these therapists. I went to one, I tried another, I tried another and I couldn't, you know, and at some point I finally got my way to a psychiatrist and I finally, you know, went to a psychiatrist and she diagnosed me as someone who was depressed with, you know, suicidal ideation and I was prescribed medication, but I grew up in an environment where psychiatric medication was not an option. So that one life preserver, that one piece that I was, that I, I was holding on to for hope of helping me and just like getting me through to the next day wasn't an option for me. So I had to continue and had to find another way to get help and to, to, to heal. At this point in where I am, my, the summer was basically ending. Did you have no other alternative medicines? Was there no, nothing? I wasn't given at that point. I didn't really, you know, again, at that summer, I ended up, I ended up taking a job. It was where I was working as a counselor that summer. And basically the fact that I got, you know, responsibility is a drug for me in, in many ways. It's, it's a way, it's the way that I mask what's going on on the inside. So the fact that I was getting up every morning to work, my family was like, oh, look, she's not depressed anymore. So they didn't really take me seriously. So I got to that psychiatrist towards the end of the summer because really the reason that they finally let me go was because I had to go to school in September. And they were like, if she's not stable, then she can't go. But what ended up happening was it was basically, you know, the school year was fast approaching and there was no, you know, I still wasn't medicated. The school wasn't going to take me back. I wasn't. Were you still a minor? I was still a minor. I was 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so that option was, you know, denied. So now I needed a new school to go to in September. And I had, you know, certain options that I was with, you know, certain schools that I, you know, wanted to go to for one reason or another, but a totally separate school was chosen for me that I went to and it was not the right fit for me. I felt like it was too intense. It was too, I felt, you know, I felt like they were, you know, shoving ideas that I didn't want to, that I wasn't ready for. And I had to subscribe to them. And the one, the one good thing about the school that I was in was that the prerequisite for being in that school was that I saw a therapist and a psychiatrist. So while I was there, I got to, I got some of the help that I needed while I was there, but I was given alternative medication, medication and other supplements that I think helped on some level. But I think the main, the main place where they helped was that I was finally listened to and believed. Ultimately, I didn't stay in that school long. It just it, didn't work with me. I had a really hard time. I wasn't showing up to classes. And ultimately I left after about four months when I came back to New York. And after that, I didn't go to high school anymore. And at that point I came back to, I came back to New York and I said, you know, if this is my life, then I'm going to take responsibility for it. I was 16 at the time. And I just, I just started, I started doing the work. What that looked like for me was I got a job so that I could support myself. And that was the time when I actually found 12-step meetings, actually. I specifically found Al-Anon, and that was a place of tremendous support, and it just gave me resources that I didn't even know 
I never learned or I never had access to. How'd you find out about it online? A friend of mine, I read a book. Ooh, I read uh, Codependent No More, I think. I learned about codependency. And I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> oh, there she is. And I, that's how I got acquainted with it. And I had a friend that was in Al-Anon and I started going to meetings and I met people that suddenly had a language for what was going on, going on inside of my head and my heart. I learned how to... I learned how to reach out to people. I learned how to let people in. I learned how to talk about what was going on. And it was, and, and those two pieces combined, you know, finally just taking control of my life and working and doing what was right for me combined with meetings. And I also had some other, I don't remember if I was specifically in therapy at this point or not. If I was in therapy, then I don't remember much about that experience necessarily. But that was how I coped with the next couple of years. And I definitely got to a space that was very emotionally um, stable. What did happen at that point, though, was that I lost my Yiddishkeit. I gave up on it. Mm. I didn't really feel like God was there for me. The Rebbe was there for me. I just, you know, let it go. And that was the path that I was on at that point. And that really lasted about a year. I was, you know, I was, and, I, and I was doing really well. I was working. I was, you know, my peers were in school, but that didn't really bother me. I, you know, felt like I was, you know, free bird. And I, I was very empowered by that, you know, that I was my own person. After about a year of that, where I was very much trying to prove also to the world that I was okay. Like, I wanted to prove to my family, like, you don't want to give me what I need. That's fine. Like, I will rise up out of my ashes. Like, I will be okay. And it was very much about like proving to other people that I was okay. At that point, this was like the winter time of, of the following year. So when I would have been in 12th grade, my friend, my close friend from, from the school that I, the first school that I went to out of town actually invited me for Hanukkah. And I went to her, I went to her house and I ended up connecting with her sister who was my teacher. And I connected with her and I started reengaging in that conversation about Judaism. And I was very opposed to it. I didn't think that anything would come out of it. I was very stubborn. But I started having that conversation again. Why I believe, why I don't believe, why should I be religious, why shouldn't I be religious? And that conversation continued even once I came back to New York. And at some point I finally, you know, I, I looked inside and I was like, maybe I'll let God back in. Maybe he exists. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, you know, and I think that that combined with the invitation that I had from, you know, 12 Steps, which was like this idea of being able to have my own God. He doesn't have to be the God I grew up with. He didn't have to be the God. He could be, he could be my God. And I said, what if my God, which I was beginning to explore, was also Hashem? What if, they, what if they're the same thing? Like, could I live with that? And I said, and I wanted that. I really wanted the community and the belonging that came with being religious. And I chose that. Age 17. So 17, yeah. I wanted, I wanted that. I wanted... I wanted a family. I wanted to be able to do that. So I ended up actually leaving Crown Heights at that point. And I went to where this mentor of mine was. And I spent a couple months there. And after that, I ended up going to seminary in Israel to learn more. And I spent a year in Sfat. And that was Sfat was also somewhere where I really rebuilt myself and, you know, found peace and found, and I was in therapy when I was in Sfat. And um, that's where I found like a life for myself. I was able to construct a life. And, you know, I came back to Crown Heights and I was able to like fit back in with where my peers were. 
And for a couple of years after that, I really, I just, I just coasted along. Like I was okay. You know, mental health was always something that was like part of my vernacular. Self-help was always part of my vernacular, but that was where I got to until about three years ago when like things started getting hard again. So for all that time from from 16, yeah. 17 years old, once you get your own job. Yeah. Until this point. Until about 22, 23, like I was okay. You know, I found religion and on a surface level, it really helped me. It gave me a place. I was working, you know, I was in and out of, you know, 12 step programs. I did, you know, Alan on away, but, and, and it gave me like a framework on which to build my life. And I was, you know, I worked with various different therapists. None of the therapists I really worked with, like, really radically changed the way I saw things mm-hmm. or changed anything about the way I saw the world. You know, I always felt like there was, you know, a seller and, you know, within me and my, and, and I just like, I just like, I closed those doors, but I knew that what I put in there was like stinking rotten, rotting trash. I was always afraid of the point in my life when that would like come back up. But I was okay for them. Like it was, it was cl- like my life was, my life was clean. It was, it was good. I was able to engage with friends. I had, you know, I was able, to, I did some really amazing work, some really, really great things. And I was really proud of where I got to in life and like coming from where I came from, which was intense, you know, suicide, you know, suicidal ideation and depression. And, you know, I wasn't cutting anymore. I was, I was okay. Like my pain wasn't front and center in my life anymore. But when I was about 22, 23, things started bubbling up and things got hard. And I wasn't quite back to where I was before, which was, you know, not able to cope with life. But things were definitely hard again. And I started realizing that the struggle to get through, the struggle to find meaning, the struggle to connect, the struggle to even connect with God started becoming hard again like it was what was was that experience like how did that start creeping in like wanting to sleep in not feeling like going to work feeling like how did that actually so i think that where it started from was basically essentially when i came back from seminary my goal was really to you know just get back on the train and i would you know start dating and get married and that was like what i wanted to happen that was like the future that i wanted and very quickly, all my friends got married and I was, you know, the last man standing. And I started looking around and I was like, you know, what's going on? Like, I, I, I signed a contract with God. Like, I'm going to become religious again. I'm going to do what you want me to do. You're going to let me have the family that I always wanted, which was like something that having a family was always something that like gave me a tremendous amount of hope, hmm. you know, that I could do right by my children. I could... You know, and that was always, that was, that was like the, the unsigned contract that I had with God. Mm. And suddenly like all my friends were married and I wasn't. And I was like, Hey, Hey God, what's going on? What's, what's with your end of the deal? And suddenly like I was starting to, you know, like my, my relationship with God, God was in question and I was working at a job and I like, I was having like trouble, like waking up in the morning and, you know, doing what I was supposed to be doing. And like suddenly like responsibility alone wasn't enough to feel. And suddenly like I had to like look deep within and say like, hey, what's going on with this relationship with God? You know, what, why am I connecting with God? What is God, like, is this, is this a a contractual relationship? Like I do something, you do something. And I had to look deeper. And at that point I started, I actually started my first, 
what I would call my first real meaningful therapy relationship, where I was introduced to somatic work. And for the first time, I was, I had like, I didn't have to like talk through my pain because talking through what happened, I'm, I'm a really good talker. And not only am I a really good talker, I'm also really good at like, if there's an emotional truth that stems from something I'm not ready to talk about, I'm really good at like assigning that emotional truth to something else. So then I can talk about that something else and address that emotional truth without addressing what I'm not ready to talk about. So talk therapy never really worked for me. What I found in somatic work though, was that I was only talking about the emotional truth and the, the story that comes around it suddenly didn't matter. So I was able to deal with what was going on and I was able to find safety in my body and safety in the world. And this wasn't just a decision to be safe. This wasn't just a decision, right? Because up until now, the deepest I got in my work was just a decision that I would be okay, a decision that I was going to get through today until I get, you know, just take it one day at a time. Suddenly I was able to find real meaningful safety. I was able to find a real meaningful conversation with God. And that, you know, real meaningful, actual connection with other human beings, not just a decision to let them in, but like a desire to let them in. So, so things just started deepening. And, you know, in some ways it made, you know, again, the minute I started talking about it, the minute I started dealing with it, Sometimes it, it looked a little bit bad for a little, you know, for a while. It it got a little bit worse, but it made the healing that much better. And not only the healing, but it 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 allowed me it allowed me to have space between, you know, there's there's the broken parts and just the the recognition, you know, that that I am that I can be the wholeness that 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 holds it together. So are you saying that intellectually or is that something? No, I was able to feel, I was able to experience that. You know, before it was just a decision like, I'm going to take all these broken pieces and I'm going to tape them together. You know, and that was like how I got through life. And I'm so grateful that I was able to get through life in that way. You know, that I was able to, at set, you know, the fact that at 17, I was able to tape all the broken pieces of me together. That's a miracle. It's nothing short of a miracle. For somebody who doesn't know what somatic healing, do you meant to just... Sure. So somatic... Somatic experiencing therapy is a form of therapy that essentially, I think it, I mean, it, it, ex it explores the idea that, you know, our bodies are the containers for our life and our, and what we, what we go through. So for example, someone who's gone through, whether it's, you know, a hard experience or a trauma or something like that, by accessing the body and the feelings that are stored within our body we're able to release them in a much more powerful way because that's where they're stored. So by creating safety around our bodies and around our experiences, we're able to release what we've gone through. Right. Without needing to go through the pain of, of reliving. Exactly. Telling the story. Mm -hmm. And what was that like? Do you still see this therapist? I don't currently see this therapist, but that experience created safety within my within my body, within my life. And that was, that was powerful. And that allowed me to, to move on. And it also allowed me, you know, and then it, it also allowed me space to, you know, I think that before my relationship with God was, you know, I felt like God was the only thing I had. So it was like, if I'm going to be in this life, I have to like cling on to God with every fiber of my being. Um, and I couldn't let go. So. 
what happened was that I wasn't really in a relationship because there was no space. Can you explain, please? I needed God. I needed to believe that God was guiding me and taking me through everything that I was going through. And you couldn't just trust that he's there without knowing. Exactly. So I, like, I had to like attach myself with every fiber of my being. How did that express itself? Action and... And expressed itself with a lot of rigid rigidity in my what I do, what I don't do. It expressed myself with like a lot of rigidity around my religion, around my firm kite. I had very black and white rules, like this is okay, this is not okay, whatever. And I had to like show up perfectly because if I didn't show up perfectly, then then he's gonna abandon me and then I'm 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 stuck. So there was a lot of rigidity, there was a lot of intensity and there was no there was no flow right in a in a real relationship there's flow there's space i'm showing up as me and god is able to show up as god we're able to be in a relationship right the whole idea of mitzvahs i think in many ways is the idea that i'm you know hashem has shared with us these are the things i want you know that that i i want from you and i'm able to show up and do them and that's how I'm, i engage in this relationship but that's that's how we create space and there was no space it was just like intense like cleaving you know and it got me through many years and i'm you know and it definitely taught me a lot of things but ultimately the minute i was able to be safe create safety create space now there was space in the relationship with god i'd love to hear how you created safety was like was there all of a sudden like permission to not do things so perfectly? Yes. How did you come about that realization? So I think that it wasn't an automatic shift. And I think I'm still I'm still finding softness and I'm still trying to find space for who I am in my relationship with God and you know and, and in my life in general. I think it happens when we're open when we're able to find spaces where we can be whole and spaces that we can find safety. So would it be something like there is an existence of unconditional love that God's going to have for me, whether I do things perfectly or not? I think it's being able to recognize, you know, I think I found a lot of hope and a lot of wholeness, you know, in God by learning, by learning more about what God is and, and who God is, specifically through Christidus. Give some references. So I think that learning about, you know, the nature of God, of God to, you know, to give and the nature and how God is, you know, learning, like learning and being able to meditate on the infinite, the infinite giving of God really, really gave me space to, you know, to say that God is, you know, God will never stop giving, you know, so I can, you know, and, and my, you know, what I do matters in, 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 in the, in the, you know, I, I, I have, I have purpose here, mm -hmm. but my, but, but God's giving is not dependent on what I do, you know, and it's not just about what I do. It's, it's not just about like, you know, which boxes I, I tick off, you know, that's not just like where I was, you know, rigid or, or where I find permission. Right. God wants all of me. Right. God created me in in all of my in all of my in, in all of who I am. In 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 my messy bits, in my whole bits. And and since God is the one who created me, God wants all of that. And and therefore 
I'm doing a disservice to my relationship with God by only showing up with my polished bits. My, my, my service of God becomes so much more perfect when I bring the part of me that's maybe a little bit lazy or a little bit sad or a little or depressed, right? By bringing that part of me to my relationship with God, firstly, now I'm able to fill that part of me up with God's love. Mm-hmm. But also that's how God created me. And therefore by bringing it to my service of him, by bringing that part of me to my, to my service of him, then that, that's how I am able to be in service of God. And that's how I'm able to be in service of the world. Can you say more about that? Like, how did that end up coming into reality of which you held, you withheld yourself from the world and then eventually you said, you know what, I'm. So I think that, I mean, it's, it's, it's still an ongoing process of bringing all of me to the world, you know? That's a perfect definition right there, right? I'm still in process and I'm still showing up. Yeah. But I think it was, I think it's, you know, where I, where I'm able to find that is by recognize by by creating safety so that's that's the first step which is you know creating safety to me looks like finding space so taking a minute before i do anything or before i you know and just and just setting an intention a quiet silent intention taking a breath feeling my feet on the floor just recognizing that like this is the moment that i'm in mm. And therefore, if this is the moment that I'm in, then this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, one of my one of my mantras in life right now is, you know, if something's meant to be, it will be. And if something's not meant to be, then me like schlepping it and, and trying to make it become is not going to make it be. And just like listening to that, you know, what is meant to be in this moment? And usually there is a voice. It's, it's whispering to me, you know, when I'm letting myself be quiet enough to hear what's like beyond the noise. And I just take a moment, I take a deep breath and I sit in this moment. I'm able to find that voice that's telling me what's meant to be in this moment and what, or if I'm trying to schlep something that's not meant to be in this moment into this moment. And, and I'll know, you know, just by, by praying, by taking a deep breath by thinking about it. There's that little bit of intuition that, that guides me. And that's how I find God. Because God is the one that's making things be. So if this is meant to be, if I'm meant to show up here in my wholeness, then I'll then that's what's meant to be. And if it's, I'm not meant to show up here in this moment with this, then something else is meant to show up here instead and I'm taking that space. What do you think are the most important elements that helped you move from the state you were in from six to 14 and 14 to 17. And then even past when you were 20, 23, you know, past all that stuff. What do you think were the key elements that really supported you in your journey and brought you to where you are today? I think that, um, you know, the things that moved me from one, one space to the next, you know, from what was, very much a commitment to the growth that I wanted to to have. I mean, I'm not going to say that like from when I was, you know, six to to fourteen that you know, but really when I when I was fourteen years old and I made a commitment to 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 getting better, to 
dealing with things, to recognizing what was going on and saying, this isn't right. I made a commitment to, to getting better, to, to, to helping myself, you know, and at each stage it was recognizing that I'm leveling up now. I'm coming to the next stage and I'm ready and, and taking that, you know, sometimes it's a leap, but being able to take that leap. And were the leaps? The first leap was really leaving home. You know, that was the first leap. There was a lot of fear around that. There was a lot of, am I betraying people? Am I leaving people behind? You know, I had little siblings who I've, you know, essentially was really there for. And I felt like I was abandoning them. You know, it was a, a fear what's going to happen from there. You know, the next leap really was leaving school when I was 16 saying, you know, this isn't working for me and I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm committing to living my life in service of what will work for me. And I, I cannot endure this just because it'll make other people happy. That was the next leap. The next leap was also, you know, choosing to believe in God, choosing to connect to others. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was the next leap. And then the final leap, I think, you know, I mean, there's been many leaps since then of, you know, but I think that the next real leap was taking that plunge from, you know, I could just be okay and I could be okay with my taped together pieces to saying, I'm ready to find wholeness. I'm ready to find the space that's bigger than my broken pieces that can hold these all together. Oh, wow. And that was, that was, that happened, you know, three years ago. And that leap is something that I take every day. That's a leap that happens every time that I try to find wholeness because, you know, in so many ways, like, you know, in so many ways, it's easier to just be taped together pieces that are broken. You know, I'm, you know, I think that part, a large part of who I am are all these opposites in many ways. You know, I, I find a lot of contradictions inside of me. And a lot of times it's just easier for me to choose one opposite, you know? Right now I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be super, super spontaneous and just commit to like being spontaneous and be afraid of commitment because I want to be spontaneous, right? But finding that space within me where I'm both spontaneous and I have commitments that's bigger and that's harder in so many ways. Like an expansion of a community. It's an expansion, exactly. It's about taking the light that, I, that fills me and, and, and letting it fill all of me as opposed to just the part that feels easy in this moment. So what's it like when you have that conflict? How do you actually implement the expansion? Is it those pauses again? It's those pauses. It's breathing into the moment and saying, where am I pushing my will? Where am I pushing my ego? Where am I saying, oh, this would be so much like, where am I saying like, oh, this would be so much fun if I like, you know, whatever versus this is what I'm meant to be doing in this moment. Or sometimes it's what would be fun to me right now instead of be, you know, like the question always changes, right? Sometimes like I want to just like throw away all responsibility and say, oh, I want to just have fun. And that's me not being true to myself. And sometimes me being, no, I have responsibility. I can't show up to this, right? That's all. That's me avoiding myself too, right? Like it's never, am I avoiding myself? You know, do I want to have fun or do I want to have commitment? That's never the question. The question is never, am I going to do X or am I going to do Y? The question is, where can I find wholeness? Where am I, where, where am I, where can I be, where am I, where am I shutting off the light? And by saying, I'm going to turn on the light and then proceed, suddenly now there's space for all of me. Beautiful. What is the 
work that you do today? The work that I do today has many, many parts. The first, the most important part of my work is the way that I show up to my relationship with God, which are, which changes and also is a commitment. So there are certain things, you know, uh, learning chassidus, davening, praying, meditating. Those are pillars of my life right now. They allow me to stay in communication with all the parts of me and with the part of me that's higher than me. I journal a lot. You know, I'm someone that can get stuck very quickly in my head. And sometimes I need to just like journal something out so that I can like see like, oh, this is where my head is stuck in circles. And just like stop that loop and say, okay, we're going to stop here and we're going to move on to the next piece. Learning any piece of Torah will generally also help me get out of that loop because suddenly I'm not just thinking my own thoughts that can spiral. I'm connecting to higher wisdom. Beautiful. So it's not like it's like you, you it has nothing literally to do. came from world to world. I meaning from like the place that you were in, you had like zero tolerance for this. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden this became the source of. Exactly. And it's, it's, it has nothing necessarily to do with like what I'm learning, even though what I'm learning is, you know, valuable. It's about being able to connect to wisdom that's higher than me. So that's a very, very helpful tool. I work with a coach. I work with you. And that's usually empowering and helpful and I also, I find ways to be of service to people around me and to my, you know, to my friends and to those in my community. Right now I'm a new, uh, a new Ola to Yerushalayim. So I am still building that community and finding ways to be of service and finding ways to teach, which is the way that I find myself in, in best service of other people. But in any way that I can be of service, you know, if there's an opportunity to help someone, the core pillar of my of who I am today relies on me showing up to other people and helping them not because it takes me out of my head but because it's 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 how I it's how I'm able to it's it's why I'm here in this world so recognizing that my wholeness was put here in this world to be of service to other uh, everyone else as opposed to escaping my brokenness by by trying to fix other people right wow that's so profound. Yeah. You could be doing the exact same thing. One of them will create more of this like unhealthy behavior and the other one creates more wholeness. Oftentimes what we, you know, you know, we could be doing the exact same behavior, which is, which is why, you know, pausing and setting intention is so important to me because I can very easily engage in just like, you know, whatever, like something needs to be done. Fine. I'll do it. As opposed to, I want to do it. I, I, I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. I would love to serve. And that's what I'm meant to be doing here, right? Like, there's always that question, like, am I doing what's meant to happen here? Or am I trying to make something happen that's not meant to happen? And, you know, sometimes also, like, setting a boundary. Someone, you know, like, there are times that I have to, you know, that the the right thing to do in a situation, you know, the best way I can be of service to someone else is by setting a boundary. And that is probably... <laughs> the harder parts of my service. And those are sometimes the, the times when I have to like check in with myself, you know, am I, am I being true to myself? Am I allowing my wholeness to exist in this space? Or am I only allowing one version of myself, which is the version of me that wants to help mm-hmm. here, you know, and that's where I have to check in. This is a common question I ask, but I wonder what inspired you to be willing to come on the podcast and share 
own personal story? I think that I'm at the point in my journey where, you know, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still in process and I pray to God that I will remain in process for my whole life. But I'm at a point where I feel that my story has value to other people. There were two very significant events that happened this year, both with regards to people wanting to end their life who were very close with me. And I started realizing that I am in a position that I can share with others. And, you know, just checking in with myself, I realized that that's how I can be of service to other people by sharing what I, you know, the hope that I have sharing my journey allows me to to help other people and actually going through life you know I always had this question especially as like a young teenager of like what does God want from me like why is he putting me through all of this like and I was always like is it just to just so that I can like help people with all of these like circumstances like that that just seems so unfair like why do I have to go through this so I can help other people and I realized that that's not true it's not about it's not that I went through things so I can help other people. I went through things so that I can become the best version of myself. But now that I'm at a place where what I've gone through can serve other people, I'm, on, I'm honored and in some ways obligated to help other people who are in pain, you know, who are not even in pain. I'm here to help people, period. In conversation, we had this, con this recorded podcast, you had mentioned that you plan on continuing to share your story. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you plan on doing that? By asking what's right and how can I be of service to other people. I would love to find ways to connect with young women to share my story and find ways to teach in a way that all of you know. I would love to to teach Torah in a way that allows people's whole self to show up to the learning process because I think that Torah as a is you know again. Mental health is a real thing, but I think that Torah is a very, very powerful tool to help us learn how to cope with our lives. And it's, you know, something that, you know, one of the pieces that I really connect with is this idea of like Teva, like go into the words of Torah when we're dealing with like the turbulent waters of the world. You're saying Teva meaning? Teva, exactly. Not just the Ark, but the the words of Torah are something that we can really enter that helps us not, you know, helps us, helps us go through life. And it's my, it's my dream that I will be able to teach Torah in that way and allow people to experience what that feels like and what that looks like, because that's life-changing. If there's one last message that you have for anybody, if you can't say it now, as well as if somebody wanted to invite you to speak for them or to teach or to just get in touch with you, if there's something that inspired them. Or a question that they have from you. So if there's one message that I want everyone to come out from this is you are whole. You are more whole than you know. And there is a version of you. There is space for all of you. Even the parts of you that feel like such a contradiction. All of you is welcome. All of you is safe. And I, I hope that you can find a way to take a step today towards that wholeness. If someone wanted to reach out to me, I'm, I share publicly my journey moving to Artisral and life on, on Instagram. They can find me at Rifka Makes Aliyah. That's where I'm sharing publicly. You can also find me on Facebook and feel free to be in touch. I would love to hear from you or, you know, have a conversation.
Well, thank you. And on behalf of anybody who's too shy to reach out to you or somebody can't get a hold of you. So I'd like to thank you now on all of our behalf. And I pray that, you know, may none of us ever have to experience anything. Amen. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.